0: Felt good this morning to uh, gain back that hour of sleep that we lost last April. <laughs> I've been uh, tired for about six months. <laughs> I look back on my uh, early days as a Christian with a bit of sadness because some of my friends didn't uh, didn't make it. Today, if you were to ask them if they were Christians, they would they would uh, say no. And when I talked to them about it. I discovered that it's not—it's uh, not that they've rejected Christianity or Christian faith. They've rejected uh, Christianity with a lot of add-ons, um, a lot of restrictions and prohibitions and proscriptions that are simply not a part of our of our New Testament faith. And that's sad. That. Legalism is a terrible thing. It makes the Christian faith unbearable, burdens people with uh, a load that they were never intended to carry. And what is for me far worse, it makes the Christian faith unworkable. It just doesn't work. And that's why it was so vigorously attacked by the apostles in the New Testament, and it's why we should be just as vigorous in our defense of true apostolic uh, Christianity. That's the issue in uh, Acts 15. Turn there with me, if you will. And I'd like to read and comment on this chapter. Acts 15. So men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, I guess it will always be that way. Just about the time you start having real fun in your Christian life and you begin to enjoy it. Someone comes along and lays the law on you, and that's exactly what happened here. These people came up from Jerusalem. Galatians, the book of Galatians, tells us that they came from James, but they came with uh, with another charter. They they really didn't follow out his they didn't follow his wishes. They had another another message that they uh, came to deliver, and it's this: uh, Yes, faith is a good thing, but uh, in order to be a real Christian, in order to be acceptable to God. Uh, you have to believe plus something else. Uh, faith plus circumcision. Faith plus baptism. Faith plus church attendance. Faith plus uh, good deeds of some sort or the other. And and that's the message that legalists uh, proclaim. Now, there are several different types of legalism. There are those that want to impose uh, additional... Uh, prohibitions in order to become a Christian. In other words, our initial salvation is based upon faith plus circumcision or faith plus baptism. And there are those that want us to govern the ongoing process of our Christian life that way. Faith plus something else makes you more powerful, better accepted by God. He loves you more. You'll grow faster if you believe plus something else. Uh, it's a pernicious... Uh, error. It's a mistake. And it's one, as I say, that was opposed by the apostles. Luke tells us that uh, Paul and Barnabas entered into debate with these men from Jerusalem in verse 2. Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. The matter really became very, very serious. Paul, or Luke, doesn't tell us much in this account. Uh, he's giving us a mere history of the church and he isn't trying to give us all the details. But Galatians tells us that a great debate raged, so much so that Peter, who happened to be, Antioch, be in Antioch at that time, was swept away by the thing. And Paul says he... Uh, removed himself from fellowship with the Gentiles he held himself aloof and it affected Barnabas steady old Barnabas as well and he began to question the validity of his mission to the Gentiles so Paul spent some time getting Barnabas settled down and then he did battle with these uh, with these men from Jerusalem evidently they went on from Antioch or some like them or some sent by them went on from Antioch to Cyprus and Asia Minor and they began to subvert the gospel in the churches where uh, that Paul had planted in Galatia, in Iconium, in Lystra, and Derby. And it's because of that that Paul sat down and wrote the book in the New Testament that we call the letter to the Galatians. If you want to know something of Paul's state of mind during this period, uh, then this afternoon read the book of Galatians. Boy, was he ever hot under the collar. And uh, that's one of his strongest writings. He says, if I or anyone else, even an angel, preach another gospel than what you heard initially, let him be damned. It's the word that he uses. Our New Testament translations sort of gussy up the term and say a curse, but it's the word damned. He was furious, outraged that people would do this to his, uh, not to his converts, but to these genuine Christians in Galatia. Add on something that would rob them of their joy and their power in in their Christian life. Well, the the debate raged on and on. Apparently, there were irreconcilable differences, and so the church in Antioch uh, dispatched Paul and Barnabas uh, with some of the other brothers down to Jerusalem. In essence, this was an appeal to a higher court. They were going to uh, confer with the apostles and elders there. And uh, Luke tells us in verse 3, "...being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria." describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. The churches there in Phoenicia and Samaria rejoiced that the gospel had gone out to the Gentiles, but it was a different story in Jerusalem. When they arrived there in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. It may strike you as odd to find Pharisees in the church, uh, particularly when they're described as Pharisees who believe they were Christians, and yet they're of the, the party of the Pharisees. Uh, Luke tells us earlier in his history that a number of the Priests in Jerusalem believed he would probably be Pharisees. And you remember Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. After these people became Christians, they simply carried on as Pharisees. You have to remember, as Edith Schaefer puts it, Christianity is Jewish in its original setting. These people didn't abandon the synagogues when they became Christians. They continued to worship as a Jew. They retained uh, Judaism as a form. It's very clear from the New Testament. James, uh, for example, in his little book, talks about Christians worshiping in the synagogue. So this is when someone comes into your synagogue, you do thus and so. Uh, they still circumcise their children. They observe the ancient fasts and feasts of Israel. They were very Jewish in their thinking, and we need to understand that. The form of their worship was Jewish, but they were worshiping Jesus as Messiah at the heart of it. They simply saw that that our Lord was the culmination of all of Old Testament worship and religion. They couldn't see any reason to leave the temple at this point. Our Lord was the, uh, was what the sacrifices were in symbol. He was the reality. So they remained very Jewish. So these Pharisees were thinking, well, we need to carry on our Jewishness even to the Gentiles. That's just a part of the gospel. They need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. They didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have all the truth that we had. So they believed that they should continue to uh, observe their customs and what's more impose them upon Gentile believers. And this great debate raged on. As Luke puts it in verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and uh, this discussion must have been like most church discussions, Uh, some people have something to say and some people simply have to say something. And uh, after a while, Peter stood up and spoke. It always impresses me how, how much Peter has grown up in the book of Acts. He was always the guy who formerly merely opened up his mouth to switch feet. But uh, something had happened to Peter, and he's right on target here. Brethren... You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. Now what Peter has in, in, in the back of his mind is his encounter with Cornelius, this Gentile God-fearer who became a a Christian, he became a believer. And if you remember the story in Acts 10, Peter preached the gospel to this gentleman, the centurion and his friends in Cornelius' house. And uh, while Peter was preaching, he uttered the words, Whoever believes in Jesus will be forgiven of all of his sins. And apparently in the quietness of their own heart, they believed. And the Holy Spirit descended upon them, and they began to speak with other tongues, which, as we've seen over and over again, was, in that particular era, a sign that God endorsed what was happening. They belonged to the community of faith. And uh, Peter says, do you remember that happened before they were baptized or circumcised or catechized or Simonized or anything else? They just, they, they believed... And the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And and as Peter puts it here in his his message, God who knows the heart bore witness to them. He saw their heart. He saw that these Gentiles had opened up their hearts by faith to receive the gospel. And so he he gave as a sign of the reality of their faith the gift of of tongues. Peter says there... They were cleansed. Their hearts were cleansed before they were circumcised. What a telling argument this is. Now, why, he says, are you telling us that the Gentiles have to be circumcised before they're saved? Because these people were obviously saved before they were circumcised or baptized. He made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Uh, one puts God to the test when he insists that God act contrary to His uh, his will and His plan. Um, you may remember the incident when when Jesus was tempted of Satan. Satan told him to cast himself off of the parapet of the temple. Because, he said, the scriptures say the angels will bear you up on wings as eagles, and lest you dash your feet against a against stone. That was a promise given to Messiah. And Jesus said, again, quoting the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, he was not saying to Satan, I'm God, don't tempt me, don't test me. He's quoting scripture to himself. He's saying, the Scriptures say you shall not put God to the test. I will not put God to the test. That's the point. I'm not going to force God's hand. I'm not going to attempt to get him to act some way contrary to the plan that that he's ordained for me. Now, that's what Peter means here when he says, why do you put God to the test? Why are you insisting that God act in a way that's contrary to his character and to the way that is clearly perceived to be his plan? The Gentiles are saved by faith and not by the law, which he describes here as a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And this might be a good time to explain the relationship between law and faith in the Old Testament because a lot of Christians have the idea that um, in the Old Testament, people were made acceptable to God by keeping the law, by obedience to the law, but in the New Testament we're saved by faith. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Numerous New Testament passages tell us that that Israelites were saved by faith. Uh, Paul puts it this way. He says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No one has ever been saved by keeping the law. Abraham was saved by faith. God uh, took Abraham out into the stars and he said, Abraham, if you can count the stars that's uh, that's how many descendants you'll have and abraham looked at, up at all the the stars in the heavens and he said amen i believe it i don't know how you're going to do it but i trust you i'll believe you i'll count on you i'll rest in your ability i'll abide in you and god said now that is a righteous man that man is all right with me he was accepted accepted by god on the basis of his faith not the law no one was ever saved in the old testament by keeping the law the law was simply an expression of the will and character of God for His people. Once you came into a relationship with Him, then out of that reservoir of power and ability that comes from God, one could could move in obedience uh, to the law. Now, that's what that's what Peter means when he says, if we impose the law upon these Gentiles now, we're placing upon them a burden that neither we nor they can bear. Uh, If we're thinking of the law in terms of a method of salvation, it doesn't work. It's unworkable. It's unbearable. But we believe, he says, that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. That is, we Jews, those Gentiles, we're all saved on the same basis. It's by faith. Luke tells us in verse 12 that uh, Peter, having made his point, the multitude fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Notice the uh, order of names is reversed here. It's been Paul and Barnabas up to this point. But now it's Barnabas and Paul because uh, Paul was a little bit suspect in Jerusalem. He wasn't one of the regulars. He wasn't one of the twelve. And uh, the church in Jerusalem was a little bit uneasy about his apostolic authority That was an issue that Paul had to clarify over and over again. And so Barnabas very wisely took, took the lead and he began to recount their adventures in Cyprus and on into Asia Minor and, uh, the signs and wonders that had accompanied their proclamation of, of the gospel there. And the point that they made is that God endorsed the method of salvation, uh, that they had preached to the, to the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. This was the clincher. James would be the one that the circumcision party would would look to for support. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the leading elder. Now, this is not James, the apostle. And this is James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book that we have in the New Testament, entitled uh, The Letter Letter of James uh he was highly respected in the Jerusalem community. He had a, a nickname, they called him Camel knees because he spent so much time in prayer he wore calluses on his on his knees. And so when James began to speak, uh, everyone began to listen. Simeon, he says in verse 14 that's that's uh, his name for Simon or Peter. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, that phrase, a people for his name, is an idiom that means the people of God, the the community of God, those that are called by, by God's name. It's used throughout the Old Testament for Israel. Now he's saying it's very clear from what Simeon has said, about his encounter with Cornelius that God is calling out a new community from from the Gentiles there's a new Israel that's being that's being formed and with this the words of the prophets agree just as it is written after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it quotes from Amos an eighth century uh, Old Testament, prophet, 8th century B.C., prophet. Amos uh, predicted uh, in his ministry the downfall of both the northern and southern kingdoms, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and he warned them because of their apostasy that they would decline, and eventually the, uh, the king would be taken from his position of authority, and Israel would be without a king for a long, long time. Now, he says, as he goes on to uh, predict the outcome the hut or the tabernacle of David the dynasty of David will be built back up the, uh, the uh, ruling family will be restored and uh, after that happens uh, he says once I rebuild its ruins and I restore it this will happen in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord in all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old, the hut or the tabernacle of David here is the dynasty of David which would be restored. And James sees that that's the Lord Jesus, who in his resurrection was appointed as the King of Israel. He was uh, given this place of, of authority as Messiah, and he he would reign forever. That's the rebuilding of the dilapidated uh, tabernacle or hut of David. And all of this, James says, is so the Gentiles can hear, and out of them will be called a people for my name. So the Old Testament corroborates, he says, what Peter is telling us. And this, he says, is nothing new. The Lord declared it years ago. He's the one who makes these things known from of old. Therefore... And this is his conclusion. It is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. He says, let's not make it difficult for these Gentiles. Let's don't put any roadblocks in, in their way. Let's keep the gospel straight and pure and clean and uh, proclaim to them the same gospel of grace and freedom that, uh, that we experience. That's, only, that's right and proper. But he says it's also right and proper that the Gentiles not put any roadblocks in the way of Jews becoming Christians that they be sensitive to the fact that all over the Roman Empire, there are Hebrews whose cultures, mores, ways of their lifestyles are different from you Gentiles. And you need to be careful that you don't violate their culture so that it becomes difficult for them to become Christians. And he says there are four things you need to be alert to. Four things you need to be sensitive about. Now, these are not requirements, they're not demands that are placed on the Gentiles. This is a word of exhortation coming from a Jew to Gentiles who might, because of their lack of cultural sensitivity, step all over someone's toes and keep them from becoming believers. Four things. He says, don't eat anything contaminated by idols. Please don't do that. Now, in in the Roman world, whenever sacrifices were offered, they would take the portion, the edible portions of the animal that uh, were not consumed in the sacrifice, and they would sell them in the local supermarket, and that was common practice. Gentiles would uh, come into the, their local uh, supermarket and pick up a T-bone steak, knowing full well that the rest of the animal had been offered to Jupiter uh, or Hermes, but uh, so what? And even the Christians, the Christian Gentiles adopted that attitude because they knew an idol was nothing. It was just a piece of wood with some metal on it. What difference did it make? It was a perfectly edible piece of, piece of meat. But that would be abhorrent to Jews. They would have nothing whatever to do. And it would be particularly insensitive to offer uh, a meal to a Jew, to invite a Jew over to your house that you wanted to evangelize and serve him up a piece of meat that had been offered to Zeus. Just don't do that. Be sensitive to their feelings and their, their culture. And then secondly, there were certain dietary restrictions which uh, which bound the Jews or had in the Old Testament. And these Jews knew that these dietary laws were all rescinded. Peter had learned that from his vision, the vision of the sheep that was let down in, from the sky. Uh, he knew that these dietary laws were had all been set aside. But yet, it was just difficult for Jews to eat anything that hadn't been properly slaughtered. It wasn't kosher. So he says, just be sensitive to that and not eat things that have been strangled and still contain the blood, because that would be very distasteful to a Jew. And then fourthly, he says, avoid fornication." Now it seems odd that he would say avoid fornication because that's not a cultural thing. It doesn't seem to be. That's something that both Jew and Gentile would realize is a sin. The word fornication means any sort of sexual immorality. Uh, it's sort of the big general word for illicit uh, sexual activity. Why would he uh, why would he prohibit fornication? Or why would this be listed here in this group of cultural uh, items? It doesn't seem to follow. Well, I tried to explain this in the 9 o'clock service. And uh, first people listened, and then they tilted their head to one side, and then they looked out the window, and then three or four went to sleep. So I'm not going to explain it to you, okay? You just have to take my word for it. And uh, if you have uh, any question, you can call me up this afternoon. I'll try to explain it on the phone. Uh, let me just say that he that James is using the word fornication here in a limited sense, in which the rabbis sometimes used it to refer to the marriage to marriage with with uh, with relatives, close relatives. Uh, the Jews had a very restrictive sense of marriage with relatives, near and far relatives. It's based on a law in Leviticus 17. And uh, the Romans had a less restrictive uh, concept of, of what constitutes incest and what is a, a proper relationship. And uh, again, it's just another cultural thing. It's not, he's not addressing the problem of fornication as we know it. It's more a question of, uh, of an appropriate marriage Uh, What what constitutes a consanguineous marriage, whether you're marrying a relative that's too close to you or not? Now, you just have to take my word for that. The uh, the rabbis, in referring back to Leviticus 17, say this is a matter of, and they use the Greek word porneia, which is the same word that's used here for fornication. And that's what uh, James is talking about. So he's not talking about sexual matters in general, but rather a specific form of, uh, of activity that would be distasteful to you. All four of these things have to do with culture. And uh, what he's saying, what James is saying, is that uh, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas are right. We shouldn't impose anything upon these Gentiles beyond simple faith. Tell them to believe in Christ, to keep counting on Him, to abide in Christ and rest in Christ. And let's not make it any more difficult for them than that. But on the the other hand, would you please bear in mind that there are Jews all over the Roman Empire, and would you be sensitive to their feelings as well, and not impose upon them cultural norms that are Western rather than Oriental, or Gentile rather than than Jewish. Now, to make a long story short, the church in Jerusalem drafted a letter and sent it, and it uh, proclaimed uh, the findings of the... Uh, this uh, council or senate in Jerusalem. Let me uh, retranslate one phrase because it seems to give the lie to everything that I've said so far. In verse 28, it says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. The Greek word translated essentials really has more the idea of necessary things. He's not uh, saying this is an absolute. This is not a command. Uh, these are things that are necessary in terms of your ongoing relationship with the Gentile world. So the apostles then, Paul and Barnabas, and Judas and Silas, uh, who made up the delegation from Jerusalem, went back to Antioch and uh, reported their findings. And in verse 31, we're told that they read it and rejoiced because of its encouragement. It was a, a tremendous encouragement. This battle was fought over and over again. Uh, it wasn't, the problem was not resolved in this council. In Jerusalem. The principle was established. But it was a battle that had to be fought over and over again. As you know in Corinthians Paul discusses again the issue of things offered to idols. And it seems that this uh, problem of uh, circumcision added to faith was uh, something that Paul had to battle over and, and over again. But the principle was very clear. And it's this. Salvation is by faith alone. The apostles proclaimed that. The Old Testament proclaims that. Uh, Paul fought over and over again a battle with the Judaizers, those who would, who would add something to simple faith. Uh, that was uh, what motivated Luther to stand against the scholastics and the whole Holy Roman Empire. He, he was against the whole world at that point in his stand that, that salvation is by faith alone. Don't let anybody take that away from you. Salvation is a gift. God comes to you with this big uh, cosmic basket of goodies, and He he says, here it is. Here is everything you need for life. Just receive it. That's true not only for initial salvation. That's not only true in terms of the way we enter into the family of God, but it's true in terms of our ongoing relationship with God. It's by faith. It all depends upon God. It does not depend upon us. I, for myself, I think the reason legalism has such an appeal to us is because we're so proud. I'm, I'm willing to say, uh, certainly, Lord, you're responsible for 90% of my salvation, but I would like to retain the right to work for at least 10% of it. And then I can strut around the universe with my thumbs behind my vest and say, look what I did. And God says, you can't do anything. You can't contribute one thing to your salvation. I don't like that. But those are the facts. It's not my baptism or some work that I do or through some discipline that I impose upon myself. It's because of His grace. As Paul puts it, it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. And that's simply where we have to rest. it. It's true of our ongoing life with, with Christ. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? In other words, having begun by faith, do you now, by some kind of tooth-clenched, cranking out of the Christian life, please God? No. No, it's all by faith. I was talking to Josh last night, our youngest son, about... Our common problem, both Josh and I have a hair-trigger temper, which I've passed on, unfortunately, to all of my kids. And uh, uh, I said two things. Josh, in the first place, one of the things we need to realize is that when we fail, we are no less displeasing to God. He doesn't frown at us. He doesn't withdraw His love. We walk in a forgiven state uh and that's a great thing to know what a liberating thing it is to know that that nothing can take away god's acceptance and love of us nothing how many of you this morning feel in thinking back over this week that you've done something that disqualified you that somehow god is is upset with you he's angry he loves you less or maybe you're thinking back over the whole course of your life and you're thinking because you're divorced or because you made such some great mistake somewhere in your life that god no longer loves you it's not true. And, and on the other hand, there's nothing we can do to make him love us more. It's not X days of obedience that renders him more favorable toward me. Paul says we're accepted in the beloved one. In other words, he loves us as much as he loves his own son. How much more loved can you be than loved like that? We can never fall out of God's love and his good graces. I told Josh, you know, it does. when we fail, just pick yourself up and brush yourself off and go on <laughs> and walk in that forgiven state. You're not disqualified. And the second thing I said is, Josh, I don't really know of any disciplines or anything that I can do to control my temper because when it goes, it just goes. And sometimes I don't even have any warning. All I can do is say, Lord, would you please control my temper? Would you please discipline me? Would you correct me? Would you set me straight? Will you change me? Because I can't change. I can't do it. As Paul puts it, it is by means of the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. That's what it means to walk by faith. It doesn't do any good. It's unworkable to impose anything on us in addition to faith. Just keep on believing our Lord. Keep trusting Him. Keep abiding in Him and you'll grow. Certainly there are demands placed upon us. There are the demands of holiness which are excessive, far above our ability. But that's why we have all the power of God given to us. And certainly we ought to read Scripture because that's how we grow in faith and that's how we know what God's will is. But it's not reading Scripture that makes God love us more. It's not prayer that renders Him more favorable. Although fair. Prayer is the highest expression of, of our faith. It's belief. It's trust. It's confidence in Him. And don't let anybody take that away from you. The second thing I would say is simply that we need to be very, very sensitive to the customs and, and patterns of worship of others and not impose upon others a Western style of worship or an Idaho style of worship or a California style of worship or any any cultural norms and, and make those absolute and say that in order to be accepted by our body or accepted by God, you have to do it this way. Some people like to worship in very dignified, restrained ways and other people like to worship uh, much more spontaneously and and they're much more noisy in their worship. Those are just forms. They don't matter. What matters is the heart. Uh, A couple of years ago, in talking to Clark Petticord, you know, with this I'm I'm through, he told me uh, a story of a young friend of his who was a missionary to Pakistan. And uh, he had been very unsuccessful in his ministry for for a number of years because without realizing it, he had imposed upon uh, these people a western culture in such a way that they thought in order to become a christian you had to become western uh you had to take your veils off of your wives and uh, you had to change your wedding ceremonies and and change your dietary habits and and there are a lot of things that he inadvertently had introduced into the gospel that that created enormous barriers and he was at a point in his ministry where he was terribly disillusioned and didn't know what to do yet uh, next And a man came and knocked on his front door. He was a Muslim holy man. And uh, he, he told this missionary that he had been excommunicated. And he said, does your Christian religion have anything to say about guilt? And this uh, young man uh, started to launch into a presentation of the gospel to this man. And he was just so uh, disturbed in his own soul, he, he couldn't say much to him. And so he just handed him a New Testament. And he said, here, read this, and uh, come back in, in a month, and we'll talk. And the man came back in a month, and he'd become a Christian. And so he said, what do I do now? And the missionary said, well, he said, take that book back to your village and teach it to your people, and come back and see me in a month. And he went back to his village, and he began to teach what he knew of the Scriptures. And he came back, and he told the missionary, you've got to come down and see what's happening. There are people all over the place that are becoming Christians. And so uh, Clark's uh, young friend went down to this village and he discovered that they were a church meeting in a mosque. And they took their shoes off as they had for centuries when they went into worship. And when they prayed, they didn't sit in chairs or stand as we do. They got down on their hands and knees as Muslims do. And they prayed toward Mecca because they had always prayed that way. And when they had weddings, it was basically a Muslim wedding, except instead of placing the Quran on the uh, shawl in front of them, they placed a copy of the Bible. And at first he thought, this is an odd thing. They're singing Muslim hymns. Uh, they, uh, from all outward uh, uh, indications, they were, they were still Muslims. But when he began to talk to them, he discovered that they had made Jesus Christ Lord. There's no question about that. And he was the center of their forms. You see, the forms didn't matter. It didn't matter. What mattered was the reality. Some things they had discarded because they were contrary to Scripture, but other things they hadn't discarded at all. And we just uh, need to be careful to discern the difference between things that are absolute in, scriptures, in Scripture and things that are mere matters of form, which may vary from place to place and culture to culture and keep our Gospel clear and clean and pure And simply not lay the law on anyone. Let's teach people both by example and by precept to walk by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the freedom that we have in Christ. We echo the Apostle Paul's words, it is by the grace of God that we are what we are. We thank you that you accepted us in our fallen and lost condition just as we were, and that You are at work in us to conform us to Your image. We simply ask for hearts that will cooperate and for a deeper and more profound faith that will enable us to, uh, to lay hold of everything that You are, everything that You have for us. We want to be Your people. Help us, Lord, to be discerning. As we go through the world, to determine what things are are genuinely moral issues, things uh, prohibited, proscribed in Scripture, and things uh, where we are free, we uh, simply want to be true to the truth. We uh, thank you, Lord, for your Spirit, who is given to us to open our, our eyes to see things as they really are. We ask that we might be that might be so, in Jesus' name. Amen.